Characteristics by Thomas Carlyle The healthy know not of their health, but only the sick. This is the physician's aphorism, and applicable in a far wider sense than he gives it. We may say it holds no less in moral, intellectual, political, poetical, than in merely corporeal therapeutics, that wherever, or in what shapesoever, powers of the sort which can be named vital art work, herein lies the test of their working right or working wrong. In the body, for example, as all doctors are agreed, the first condition of complete health is that each organ perform its function, unconsciously, unheeded. Let but any organ announce its separate existence, were it even boastfully, and for pleasure, not for pain, then already has one of those unfortunate false centers of sensibility established itself, already is derangement there. The perfection of bodily well-being is that the collective bodily activities seem one, and be manifested, moreover, not in themselves, but in the action they accomplish. If a Dr. Kitchener boasts that his system is in high order, dietetic philosophy may indeed take credit, but the true petition was that countryman who answered that, for his part, he had no system. In fact, unity, agreement is always silent, or soft-voiced, it is only discord that loudly proclaims itself. So long as the several elements of life, all fitly adjusted, can pour forth their movement like harmonious tuned strings, it is a melody and unison, life, from its mysterious fountains, flows out as in celestial music and diapason, which also, like that other music of the spheres, even because it is perennial and complete, without interruption and without imperfection, might be fabled to escape the ear. Thus too, in some languages, is the state of health well denoted by a term expressing unity. When we feel ourselves as we wish to be, we say that we are whole. Few mortals, it is to be feared, are permanently blessed with that felicity of having no system. Nevertheless, most of us, looking back on young years, may remember seasons of a light, aerial translucency and elasticity and perfect freedom. The body had not yet become the prison house of the soul, but was its vehicle and implement, like a creature of the thought, and altogether pliant to its bidding. We knew not that we had limbs, we only lifted, hurled and leapt, through eye and ear, and all avenues of sense, came clear unimpeded tidings from without, and from within issued clear victorious force, we stood as in the center of nature, giving and receiving, in harmony with it all, unlike Virgil's husbandmen, too happy, because we did not know our blessedness. In those days, health and sickness were foreign traditions that did not concern us, our whole being was as yet one, the whole man like an incorporated will. Such were rest or ever successful labor the human lot, might our life continue to be, a pure, perpetual, unregarded music, a beam of perfect white light, rendering all things visible, but itself unseen, even because it was of that perfect whiteness, and no irregular obstruction had yet broken it into colors. The beginning of inquiry is disease, all science, if we consider well, as it must have originated in the feeling of something being wrong so it is and continues to be but division, dismemberment, and partial healing of the wrong. Thus, as was of old written, the tree of knowledge springs from a root of evil, and bears fruits of good and evil. Had Adam remained in paradise, there had been no anatomy, and no metaphysics. But, alas, as the philosopher declares, life itself is a disease, a working incited by suffering, action from passion. The memory of that first state of freedom and paradisiac unconsciousness has faded away into an ideal poetic dream. We stand here too conscious of many things, with knowledge, the symptom of derangement, 
we must even do our best to restore a little order. Life is, in few instances, and at rare intervals, the diapason of a heavenly melody, oftenest the fierce jar of disruptions and convulsions, which, do what we will, there is no disregarding. Nevertheless, such is still the wish of nature on our behalf. In all vital action, her manifest purpose and effort is, that we should be unconscious of it, and like the peptic countrymen, never know that we have a system. For, indeed vital action everywhere is emphatically a means, not an end. Life is not given us for the mere sake of living, but always with an ulterior external aim, neither is it on the process, on the means, but rather on the result, that nature, is any of her doings, is wont to entrust us with insight and volition. Boundless as is the domain of man, it is but a small fractional proportion of it that he rules with consciousness, and by forethought, what he can contrive, nay, what he can altogether know and comprehend, is essentially the mechanical, small, the great is ever, in one sense or other, the vital, it is essentially the mysterious, and only the surface of it can be understood. But nature, it might seem, strives, like a kind mother, to hide from us even this, that she is a mystery, she will have us rest on her beautiful and awful bosom as if it were a secure home, on the bottomless boundless deep, whereon all human things fearfully and wonderfully swim, she will have us walk and build, as if the film which supported us there, which any scratch of a bare bodkin will rend asunder, any sputter of a pistol shot instantaneously burn up, were no film, but a solid rock. Foundation Forever in the neighborhood of an inevitable death, man can forget that he is born to die, of his life, which, strictly meditated, contains in it an immensity, and an eternity, he can conceive lightly, as of a simple implement wherewith to do day labor and earn wages. So cunningly does nature, the mother of all highest art, which only apes her from afar, body forth the finite from the infinite, and guide man safe on his wondrous path, not more by endowing him with vision, than, at the right place, with blindness. Under all her works, chiefly under her noblest work, life, lies a basis of darkness, which she benignantly conceals, in life too, the roots and inward circulations which stretch down fearfully to the regions of death and night, shall not hint of their existence, and only the fair stem with its leaves and flowers, shown on by the fair sun, shall disclose itself, and joyfully grow. However, without venturing into the abstruse, or too eagerly asking why and how, in things where our answer must needs prove, in great part, an echo of the question, let us be content to remark farther, in the merely historical way, how that aphorism of the bodily physician holds good in quite other departments. Of the soul, with her activities, we shall find it no less true than of the body, nay, cry the spiritualists, is not that very division of the unity, man, into a dualism of soul and body, itself the symptom of disease, as, perhaps, your frightful theory of materialism, of his being but a body, and therefore, at least, once more a unity, may be the paroxysm which was critical, and the beginning of cure. But omitting this, we observe, with confidence enough, that the truly strong mind, view it as intellect, as morality, or under any other aspect, is nowise the mind acquainted with its strength, that here is before the sign of health is unconsciousness. In our inward, as in our outward world, what is mechanical lies open to us, not what is dynamical, and has vitality. Of our thinking, we might say, it is but the mere upper surface that we shape into articulate thoughts, underneath the region of argument and conscious discourse, lies the region of meditation, here, in its quiet mysterious depths, dwells what vital force is in us, here, if it is to be created, and not merely manufactured and communicated, 
must the work go on. Manufacture is intelligible, but trivial, creation is great, and cannot be understood. Thus if the debater and demonstrator, whom we may rank as the lowest of true thinkers, knows what he has done, and how he did it, the artist, whom we rank as the highest, knows not, must speak of inspiration, and in one or the other dialect, call his work the gift of a divinity. But on the whole, genius is ever a secret to itself, of this old truth we have, on all sides, daily evidence. The Shakespeare takes no airs for writing Hamlet, and the Tempest, understands not that it is anything surprising, Milton, again, is more conscious of his faculty, which accordingly is an inferior one. On the other hand, what cackling and strutting must we not often hear and see, when, in some shape of academical prelusion, maiden speech, review article, this or the other well-fledged goose has produced its goose egg, of quite measurable value, were it the pink of its whole kind, and wonders why all mortals do not wonder. Foolish enough, too, was the college tutor's surprise at Walter Shandy, how, though unread in Aristotle, he could nevertheless argue, and not knowing the name of any dialectic tool, handled them all to perfection. Is it the skillfulest anatomist that cuts the best figure at Sadler's Wells? Or does the boxer hit better for knowing that he has a flexor longus and a flexor brevis? But indeed, as in the higher case of the poet, so here in that of the speaker and inquirer, the true force is an unconscious one. The healthy understanding, we should say, is not the logical, argumentative, but the intuitive, for the end of understanding is not to prove and find reasons, but to know and believe. Of logic, and its limits, and uses and abuses, there were much to be said and examined, one fact, however, which chiefly concerns us here, has long been familiar, that the man of logic and the man of insight, the reasoner and the discoverer, or even knower, are quite separable, indeed, for most part, quite separate characters. In practical matters, for example, has it not become almost proverbial that the man of logic cannot prosper? This is he whom business people call systematic and theorizer, and wordmonger, his vital intellectual force lies dormant, or extinct, his whole force is mechanical, conscious, of such a one it is foreseen that, when once confronted with the infinite complexities of the real world, his little compact theorem of the world will be found wanting, that unless he can throw it overboard, and become a new creature, he will necessarily founder. Nay, in mere speculation itself, the most ineffectual of all characters, generally speaking, is your dialectic man-at-arms, were he armed cap a pie in syllogistic male of proof, and perfect master of logic fence, how little does it avail him? Consider the old school men, and their pilgrimage towards truth, the faithfulest endeavor, incessant unwearied motion, often great natural vigor, only no progress, nothing but antic feats of one limb poised against the other, though they balanced, somerset, and made postures, at best gyrated swiftly with some pleasure, like spinning dervishes, and ended where they began. So is it, so will it always be, with all system-makers and builders of logical card-castles, of which class a certain remnant must, in every age, as they do in our own, survive and build. Logic is good, but it is not the best. The irrefragable doctor, with his chains of induction, his corollaries, dilemmas, and other cunning logical diagrams and apparatus, will cast you a beautiful horoscope and speak reasonable things, nevertheless your stolen jewel, which you wanted him to find you, is not forthcoming. Often by some winged word, winged as the thunderbolt is, of a Luther, a Napoleon, a Goethe, shall we see the difficulty split asunder, and its secret laid bare, 
while the irrefragable, with all his logical tools, hews at it and hovers round it and finds it on all hands too hard for him. Foolish enough, too, was the college tutor's surprise at Walter Shandy, how, though unread in Aristotle, he could nevertheless argue, and not knowing the name of any dialectic tool, handled them all to perfection. Is it the skillfulest anatomist that cuts the best figure at Sadler's Wells? Or does the boxer hit better for knowing that he has a flexor longus and a flexor brevis? But indeed, as in the higher case of the poet, so here in that of the speaker and inquirer, the true force is an unconscious one. The healthy understanding, we should say, is not the logical, argumentative, but the intuitive, for the end of understanding is not to prove and find reasons, but to know and believe. Of logic, and its limits, and uses and abuses, there were much to be said and examined, one fact, however, which chiefly concerns us here, has long been familiar, that the man of logic and the man of insight, the reasoner and the discoverer, or even knower, are quite separable, indeed, for most part, quite separate characters. In practical matters, for example, has it not become almost proverbial that the man of logic cannot prosper? This is he whom business people call systematic and theorizer, and wordmonger, his vital intellectual force lies dormant, or extinct, his whole force is mechanical, conscious, of such a one it is foreseen that, when once confronted with the infinite complexities of the real world, his little compact theorem of the world will be found wanting, that unless he can throw it overboard and become a new creature, he will necessarily founder. Nay, in mere speculation itself, the most ineffectual of all characters, generally speaking, is your dialectic man-at-arms, were he armed cap a pie in syllogistic male of proof and perfect master of logic fence, how little does it avail him? Consider the old school men, and their pilgrimage towards truth, the faithfulest endeavor, incessant unwearied motion, often great natural vigor, only no progress, nothing but antic feats of one limb poised against the other, though they balanced, somerset, and made postures, at best gyrated swiftly with some pleasure, like spinning dervishes, and ended where they began. So is it, so will it always be, with all system-makers and builders of logical card-castles, of which class a certain remnant must, in every age, as they do in our own, survive and build. Logic is good, but it is not the best. The irrefragable doctor, with his chains of induction, his corollaries, dilemmas, and other cunning logical diagrams and apparatus, will cast you a beautiful horoscope and speak reasonable things, nevertheless your stolen jewel, which you wanted him to find you, is not forthcoming. Often by some winged word, winged as the thunderbolt is, of a Luther, a Napoleon, a Goethe, shall we see the difficulty split asunder, and its secret laid bare while the irrefragable, with all his logical tools, hews at it and hovers round it and finds it on all hands too hard for him. Again, in the difference between oratory and rhetoric, as indeed everywhere in that superiority of what is called the natural over the artificial, we find a similar illustration. The orator persuades and carries all with him, he knows not how, the rhetorician can prove that he ought to have persuaded and carried all with him, the one is in a state of healthy unconsciousness, as if he had no system, the other, in virtue of regimen and dietetic punctuality, feels at best that his system is in high order. So stands it, in short, with all the forms of intellect, whether as directed to the finding of truth, or to the fit imparting thereof, to poetry, to eloquence, to depth of insight, which is the basis of both these, always the characteristic of right performance is a certain spontaneity, an unconsciousness, the healthy know not of their health, 
but only the sick. So that the old precept of the critic, as crabbed as it looked to his ambitious disciple, might contain in it a most fundamental truth, applicable to us all, and in much else than literature, whenever you have written any sentence that looks particularly excellent, be sure to blot it out. In like manner, under milder phraseology, and with a meaning purposely much wider, a living thinker has taught us, of the wrong we are always conscious, of the right never. But if such is the law with regard to speculation, and the intellectual power of man, much more is it with regard to conduct, and the power, manifested chiefly therein, which we name moral. Let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, whisper not to thy own heart, how worthy is this action, for then it is already becoming worthless. The good man is he who works continually in well-doing, to whom well-doing is as his natural existence, awakening no astonishment, requiring no commentary, but there, like a thing of course, and as if it could not but be so. Self-contemplation, on the other hand, is infallibly the symptom of disease, be it, or be it not the sign of cure. An unhealthy virtue is one that consumes itself to leanness in repenting and anxiety or, still worse, that inflates itself into dropsical boastfulness and vainglory. Either way, there is a self-seeking, an unprofitable looking behind us to measure the way we have made, whereas the sole concern is to walk continually forward and make more way. If in any sphere of man's life, then in the moral sphere, as the inmost and most vital of all, it is good that there be wholeness, that there be unconsciousness, which is the evidence of this. Let the free, reasonable will, which dwells in us, as in our holy of holies, be indeed free, and obeyed like a divinity, as is its right, and its effort, the perfect obedience will be the silent one. Such perhaps were the sense of that maxim, enunciating, as is usual, but the half of a truth, to say that we have a clear conscience, is to utter a solecism, had we never sinned, we should have had no conscience. Were defeat unknown, neither would victory be celebrated by songs of triumph. This, true enough, is an ideal, impossible state of being, yet ever the goal towards which our actual state of being strives, which it is the more perfect the nearer it can approach. Nor, in our actual world, where labor must often prove ineffectual, and thus in all senses light alternate with darkness, and the nature of an ideal morality be much modified, is the case, thus far, materially different. It is a fact which escapes no one, that, generally speaking, whoso is acquainted with his worth has but a little stock to cultivate acquaintance with. Above all, the public acknowledgement of such acquaintance, indicating that it has reached quite an intimate footing, bodes ill. Already, to the popular judgment, he who talks much about virtue in the abstract, begins to be suspect, it is shrewdly guessed that where there is great preaching, there will be little almsgiving. Or again, on a wider scale, we can remark that ages of heroism are not ages of moral philosophy, Virtue, when it can be philosophized of, has become aware of itself, is sickly and beginning to decline. A spontaneous habitual all-pervading spirit of chivalrous valor shrinks together, and perks itself up into shriveled points of honor, humane courtesy, and nobleness of mind dwindle into punctilious politeness, avoiding meats, paying tithe of mint and anise, neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Goodness, which was a rule to itself, must now appeal to precept, and seek strength from sanctions, the free will no longer reigns unquestioned and by divine right, but like a mere earthly sovereign, by expediency, by rewards and punishments, or rather, let us say, the free will, so far as may be, has abdicated and withdrawn into the dark, and a spectral nightmare of a necessity usurps its throne.
for now that mysterious self-impulse of the whole man, heaven-inspired, and in all senses partaking. Of the infinite, being captiously questioned in a finite dialect, and answering, as it needs must, by silence, is conceived as non-extant, and only the outward mechanism of it remains acknowledged, of volition, except as the synonym of desire, we hear nothing, of motives, without any mover, more than enough. So too, when the generous affections have become well-nigh paralytic, we have the reign of sentimentality. The greatness, the profitableness, at any rate the extremely ornamental nature of high feeling, and the luxury of doing good, charity, love, self-forgetfulness, devotedness, and all manner of godlike magnanimity, are everywhere insisted on, and pressingly inculcated in speech and writing, in prose and verse, Sicinian preachers proclaim benevolence to all the four winds, and half truth engraved on their watch seals, unhappily with little or no effect. Were the limbs in right walking order, why so much demonstrating of motion? The barrenest of all mortals is the sentimentalist. Granting even that he were sincere, and did not willfully deceive us, or without first deceiving himself, what good is in him? Does he not lie there as a perpetual lesson of despair, and type of bedrid valetudinarian impotence? His is emphatically a virtue that has become, through every fiber, conscious of itself, it is all sick, and feels as if it were made of glass, and durst not touch or be touched, in the shape of work, it can do nothing, at the utmost, by incessant nursing and coddling, keep itself alive. As the last stage of all, when virtue, properly so called, has ceased to be practiced, and become extinct, and a mere remembrance, we have the era of sophists, descanting of its existence, proving it, denying it, mechanically accounting for it, as deceptors and demonstrators cannot operate till once the body be dead. Thus is true moral genius, like true intellectual, which indeed is but a lower facis thereof, ever a secret to itself. The healthy moral nature loves goodness, and without wonder wholly lives in it, the unhealthy makes love to it, and would fain get to live in it, or, finding such courtship fruitless, turns round, and not without contempt abandons it. These curious relations of the voluntary and conscious to the involuntary and unconscious, and the small proportion which, in all departments of our life, the former bears of the latter, might lead us into deep questions of psychology and physiology, such, however, belong not to our present object. Enough, if the fact itself become apparent, that nature so meant it with us, that in this wise we are made. We may now say, that view man's individual existence under what aspect we will, under the highest spiritual, as under the merely animal aspect, everywhere the grand vital energy, while in its sound state, is an unseen unconscious one, or, in the words of our old aphorism, the healthy know not of their health, but only the sick.